friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read a portion of what we studied last week. We read a larger passage and we connected the tabernacle and the details of the Old Testament tabernacle to our salvation today. But I want to read just a few verses of what we studied last week and orient ourselves in terms of application for a passage like this. So I'm going to read uh, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Hear now God's word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want the answer to that question. How much more Will Christ, his perfect sacrifice through the Spirit before you in all your splendor, how much more will that purify our conscience to serve you free from dead works? Would you answer that even this morning as we open your word and study it? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I want to start by telling you guys about a very special place. It's a, it's a land, it's a location, it's a place that is so different than anywhere you've been before that it's really hard to get your mind around. I mean, the place I'm talking about, it's a place where the grass is greener and the waters are more still than anything that you can possibly imagine. It's a place, it's a land of beauty and of truth and light. It's a land that hints of the Garden of Eden because there's good work to be done and there's good fruit to be born and there's a tree of life in her midst. It's a land that hints of heaven because even if the sun were to never shine again, there would still be light. And even if the temple were never raised again in Jerusalem, there would still be God's presence. And even if you and I were spared no suffering, we would grieve, but never again as the world grieves. It's a place that even though angels, they dwell in God's glory, when they heard of it, they longed to look to this place. It's a place and a land where the dead are raised and don't fear death. It's a place where the blind see, where the lame can walk again, where sworn enemies are joined together in friendship and unity. It's a place where sins are forgiven and they're forgotten forever. Christian, the place I'm describing is the place that you as a believer now dwell. This is the land that you live in. This is the land of good things in which you embody here and now today. A massive shift has taken place in the life of a believer. You were once one thing and described in one way and dwelt in one place. But when Christ has come, who is your glory, he has united you with God himself and you are a new creation in a new place. 
It's amazing to flip through the prophets and the New Testament writers and to see them wrestle with the limits of human language. How do I even begin to describe a person who is a new creation in this place? Paul makes an attempt in Ephesians chapter two when he writes in verses five and six, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Paul is saying the best I know how to explain this is this. You have been raised with Christ. Jesus has ascended to God's right hand and the best I can explain your life in Christ is to say that you are there seated with him. You're united in such a way, it's as if your feet don't tread on this earth anymore, but you are lodged with Christ where he is. Well, today in Hebrews chapter nine, we get to watch as the writer to the Hebrews wrestles with how to explain this new life in Christ. And this is what he says in verse 11. Look at this. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Christian, you and I dwell in this land of good things come. This is our dwelling place. These are the benefits that we have as a believer. Now, I think if we're honest with each other, we would say that most days we wake up and we don't feel like we dwell in this land of good things come. It doesn't feel like we have access to these kind of benefits. The land we described at the beginning of the sermon, that doesn't really feel like our land. We cease to take advantage of these things and we cease to have an imagination that things could possibly be any different than they are now. We struggle with that lack of vision. And Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 9, is not okay with that. Jesus is not okay for a believer to dwell with this lack of imagination because the writer stresses to us in verse 14 that Jesus' sacrifice has momentum. We hear that he frees us from dead works to serve the living God. Do you hear that movement? We're coming from a place of dead works. We're coming from an old world way of doing things and we're being freed by Jesus into a new world and our desperate plea to God is to get oriented around this new place. How do we do that? What does that look like? How does it look to live in the land of good things come? What do we do and how do we apply a passage like this? Well, today I want to dedicate all the time simply to application. I don't want to tell us as believers what to do, but I want to see from Hebrews how to do these things. I just want to highlight three ways we dwell in the world of good things come, and they are these. Number one, the language of good things come, which is truth. Number two, the expectation of good things come, which is hope. And number three, the response of good things come, which is thanksgiving. Now, this is interesting because none of those three words are in our passage. Truth and hope and thanksgiving, you don't find those words in Hebrews 9 because Hebrews 9 is not commanding us to do those things. Hebrews 9 is demonstrating how we embody those things. We put a passage like this on, we try it on for size, and we begin to experience these ways of dwelling in this new world. So let's look at these just very briefly. Number one, the language of good things come, which is truth. I don't think 
it surprises any of us to learn that we get oriented in this new world around truth, that so much of the Christian life is hearing rightly and speaking rightly. Many of us are coming from very different denominational backgrounds, and we've all kind of landed haphazardly into this church, which is a Presbyterian church in America church, and every denomination has strengths and weaknesses. The longer you spend in our brand of Presbyterianism, the longer you're going to be hammered with truth. Truth is essential. We need right doctrine. We need right teaching. We need right content. And all of this is good. You're never going to hear us disparage truth. But I don't think that's enough. I don't think it's enough to say we need to convey content from one person to another. I think we need to go further and say we aren't to simply say things truly, but to say them beautifully. This is kind of a different slant on what we experience in Hebrews. I recently heard a phenomenal lecture by John Piper. It was on the poet George Herbert. And I basically want to capture in the next two minutes what it took John Piper an hour and a half to say. So I don't know if that's a safe thing to do, but we're going to try it. Because Piper's title for his lecture, it describes the thesis this point precisely. His title is this, Saying Beautifully, as a way of seeing beauty. Saying beautifully as a way of seeing beauty. How we say something changes the way we see something. The writer to the Hebrews, he does this in spades. You want to see someone who conveys truth and conveys it beautifully to capture our imaginations. You spend time with the writer to the Hebrews. I mean, think of how many times We have gone into this book knowing something to be true. We have the content. We understand the content. And then the writer to the Hebrews says it in a way that we have never, ever, ever, ever heard before in our lives. Here's a few examples of how he does this. When I come to Hebrews, I probably would have told you that Jesus is in control. That's a true theological statement. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't say Jesus is in control. He says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's an incredibly poetic beautiful, true line, and I took this small theology of Jesus being in control, and I heard it in a new and wonderful way, and the way the writer to the Hebrews says something affects the way I see that thing, because now I imagine Jesus as upholding the world, not even with his hands, but with the word of his power. Come into the Bible, I would have said something like, the Bible is convicting. It is. You read it and you get convicted of your sin. But what does the writer to the Hebrews say? He says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And all of a sudden, our world through language is opened up in a new way to see the way God's word works. In our passage... I would have said something like, life is different now that we're Christians, but the writer to the Hebrews has said, Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come. The way something is said affects the way something is seen. Language changes us and it changes the way we shape our world and understand our world around us. 
I think if we downplay serious study of Scripture, if we downplay prayerful meditation of Scripture, letting this word seep into our hearts and our vocabularies and our imagination, sometimes we do that in an effort to be spontaneous and authentic with another person. I don't, I don't want to get up here with this rote thing to say, I want to be spontaneous and authentic. Well, the problem with that is that most often equals a rut. I go to meet with a friend and I don't think and and dig and mine the depths of scripture. I go to kind of respond with a knee-jerk reaction to what they're talking about and I get in a rut. I only know a couple of verses and so I quote those couple of verses. I only have a couple of stories of what God did in my life and so I say those same stories. I say the same platitudes and the same truisms because I am not mining the depth of this word and I am not being changed by this word and all the while my perception of this new world of what Jesus has accomplished is shrinking in proportion to my biblical vocabulary. I don't have the words, the expressions to share it and say it, and that my vision suffers for it. That won't do. What we love, we study. What we desire, we meditate on. We seek new words, new expressions, new passages from this word to shape the way we see the world that Jesus has wrought. That's number one, language and truth. Number two, an expectation of good things come, which is hope. Now I want you guys to imagine that somebody comes up to you this week and they ask you a question. They say, what is your Christian life going to look like five or ten years from now? How is that going to change? What's going to be different about it? How would you describe yourself as a believer ten years from now? I suspect that if we were asked that question, a lot of us would be dumbstruck, right? I mean, I have no idea what you want me to say. If you had asked me what my career is going to look like, I would have been able to tell you in 10 years what position I want to have. If you would have asked me what my family is going to look like, I could have named the ages and stages. You asked me my 401k, and I'll tell you where that's headed. You could ask me what my landscaping is going to look like 10 years from now, and I'd probably have a sense of the direction my backyard is headed. But you ask me what my Christian life is going to look like 10 years from now, and and I fail to have an imagination for that. I mean, I study my Bible 10 minutes a day now. I think 10 years from now, I might study my Bible 12 minutes a day. I I can suffer in this old world nearsightedness, this old world that is stuck in a shallow vision that the way things are in my Christian life and my experience is the way things will always be. The same sins, the same patterns, the same mediocrity. And so even discipleship looks dull. I can't imagine where I would grow as a believer and what my life would look like. We, we don't trade in the currency of hope. We, we get squeamish around the word hope because the hopeful person in our midst, the person that keeps talking about things getting better and looking better and being better in Christ, that person just kind of sounds trite and naive. It sounds like the kind of person that needs to move out of their parents' basement and get a real job because they just don't have a sense of the world as we do. But really, the table needs to be turned. It's not the hopeful person in our midst that is being trite and naive, but it's the cynical person in the Christian life who cannot grasp the world as it really is. 
the entire thrust of the book of Hebrews has been hope. He's going to repeat this theme again and again and again. And we've reached this feverish pitch of hope in Hebrews chapter 9, where he says the earthly tabernacle and the old covenant, those things have gone away. This now is the time of reformation. Jesus is a new high priest who mediates our life in the world of good things that have come. This message is absolutely radical when you think about the audience that is receiving this message. Remember who the writer to the Hebrews is addressing this letter to. I suspect, and if this is true, that he's writing to a house church in Rome, this is the situation. You get a tiny, minuscule, beaten down church. I mean, there might be 30 or 40 or 50 people in this church. They're meeting in one or two or three different houses spread throughout the city. A city in Rome that has now reached 1 million people. 30 people in the church compared to 1 million people in the city. And at this point, they're suffering. They're being persecuted. We're going to learn that they're having property seized from them and members from their church have already been arrested and thrown into prison. They are suffering. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. They're being completely beaten down by the world that surrounds them. And then the writer to the Hebrews has the absolute audacity to say to them, You are in the age of good things come and things are only going to get better in Christ. What on earth is he talking about? It begs the question, who has the truer vision of the world? Who sees the world as it really is? Is it the Roman soldier who has just seized property that moth and dust are going to destroy anyway? Does he have the true vision of the world? Or is it the despairing church member in their midst who's telling the congregation, let's leave Jesus and abandon Jesus. Let's go back to Judaism because at least there we can live out the remaining days of our lives in relative peace and no one will persecute us for following Jesus. Does that person have a true vision of the world? Or is it the writer to the Hebrews who pleads with them to cast their attention on the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We get oriented in the Christian life, in this land of good things come, to hope, to who God is, and to what he's going to do in the world. Which brings us to number three, the final point the response of good things come. This is the language of good things come. This is the expectation of good things come. Now, what's the response of good things come? And that is, finally, thanksgiving. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I love that line. Because there's a lot of days it feels like I'm forgetting all his benefits. I mean, as I was reflecting on this and meditating on this passage, I thought about all the ways that I've had to apologize, probably to five or six different people in this church congregation in the past few weeks, confess to them that I am a person who is forgetting all Jesus's benefits. People have come up to me in the supermarket, they've come up to me on the street, they've come up to me in the welcome area, and they've said, how, thi- how are things going? How's life? What's going on with you? And I can't help but respond, things are really heavy right now. 
I'm struggling right now. I'm in the deep end of the pool. I'm treading water and it feels like I'm drowning. Woe to me as the pastor of a church, as a lay person, you'll never quite understand what I suffer and what I endure. I I share these things with other people. And then I read a passage like Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 about Jesus as my high priest about an eternal redemption that has been secured, about a purified conscience, about a new way of living in the world. And then I realize there is a massive disconnect between what I'm experiencing and speaking about and what Jesus is doing on my behalf. I'm all about transparency. I'm all about sharing hard things. I'm all about being honest and real and raw with each other and expressing those things to each other. But my question is, why does my mind always go to the hardship I'm facing and not the good things Jesus is bringing? Why is that my knee-jerk reaction? Why do I express those things and nothing from Hebrews chapter 9? Have my burdens loomed larger on my horizon than my benefits and blessings in Christ? May that never be. Jesus is a high priest of the land of good things come. He brings this beautiful language of truth. He brings this expectation of hope. And he brings this remarkable response of thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you do this in us more and more? We want these things regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our restlessness, regardless of our thanklessness. We want to experience the world of good things come in which you are a high priest and of which we wait in hopeful expectation for how you will change us and how you will change the world. We plead for this in Jesus' name, amen.